Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean, and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. Now, to move into the text that we're going to study in just a moment and to allow the truth of God's Word to pour over us, a little bit of a background. A little summary of where we've been in this series. So the resurrection has changed the arc of human history. And now Jesus says, wait, and there will be a spirit who will come upon you and will empower you, infuse within you the capacity to be and to do things you never thought you could be or do. And sure enough, it did. When we began this study, we saw at Pentecost the Spirit was pouring out over all flesh with with no discrimination between the flesh that chose to let the Spirit pour out. It was male and female, old and young, wealthy and poor, educated and uneducated. And, And suddenly, common, ordinary people were filled with the capacity to do things that only they had seen Him do before. And they were saying things that they had only heard him say before. They were filled, if you want to think of it this way, with a kind of divine animating power that enabled them to experience resurrection. And now suddenly those who were in need of God's healing love were experiencing it because the people who were following him were, well, they were living it out. And they were lifting up those who were low. And they were welcoming in those who were forgotten. And as a result, it spread like wildfire. You might think that's good news, but the trouble is it's only good news for those who are longing for it. It's bad news if you are in charge of the power systems of the day. For the religious authorities whose job it was to uphold the infrastructure of faith, it felt like they were losing a little bit of control. And so they resisted the message of Jesus. They resisted and rejected the message of the cross and More than that, they began to even push and press and persecute those who would claim that the risen one is the king of the world. So they began to be shoved out of that center in Jerusalem into the surrounding countryside and the villages, the cities, like, well, into Samaria and Judea. And last week we found that they made their way to Antioch, a city that was described by the historian Josephus as one of the three greatest cities in the Roman world. And in that city, the church spread like wildfire. It would be the center of the Christian movement for the first century or more. In that place, for the first time in the world, there was this multilingual, multicultural, multinational, multi-ethnic body of believers who belonged to a kingdom that superseded political boundaries, that had no no concern over geographical territories. It was a kingdom whose domain was the realm of the human heart. And as it spread through all the territories of the inward being, the Jerusalem of the heart, the Samaria, the Judea of the heart, the uttermost realms of the heart, they wouldn't shut up about it. 
They couldn't stop talking about the reality that those who once felt like they were far off have now been brought close because God has been made known through the person of Jesus and God has reconciled the world through his resurrection. So from there, this missionary zeal in Antioch spread the word throughout the known world. And people like, well, like, like Paul and Silas and Timothy and Barnabas, well, they, they headed out, and as they did, they made their way around cities around the Mediterranean, and as they went into cities, they, who were now known as little Christs, folks who embodied the very message of radical hospitality and radical generosity and radical sacrifice. These would go into these cities and they would begin in the synagogue and they would try to spread the good news there about this Jewish king who now is the king of all the world. And some believed and some didn't and they felt great pressure in every place they went. Ironically, the greater the pressure, the greater the growth. Reminding us, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, that there is a strange relationship between the ease with which we can practice faith and how shallow it is. And the difficulty of having no rights, no freedoms, no privileges, and the strength of a deepened faith that will stand the test of time. And Paul, last week, we, we saw he was beaten, flogged, nearly killed for proclaiming this message. So now he has to escape, and where he goes is a city called Athens. And he waits in Athens for his other companions to join him. Athens, who at this point in history had been ruled for the past 200 years by the Roman Empire, but they were still like, the, like, a, like a Greco-Roman center for culture and education and philosophy. And Athens was the home of all the great philosophical schools, Plato, Aristotle, the wealthy families from around the Mediterranean would send their sons and daughters to learn at one of these great philosophical schools. And in the city of Athens, gosh, they were such a religious people. They had statues and shrines and temples and towers and columns and idols to every imaginable kind of God that the human imagination can conceive. And everywhere you turned, the place was thick with religious expression. Yeah. And that's where we pick up the story. Beginning in chapter 17, verse 16, we see where Paul arrives on the scene. Listen to these words. While Paul was waiting for them, his traveling companions, in Athens, he was deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Stop right there for just a moment. There's a phrase that pops off the, the page for me. The last phrase in the Greek text is actually katadolon, which means it is utterly idolatrous. Or another way to say it is the city was saturated with idols. You know that there are some times when we study the word, when when we are clearly separated by millennia of, of experience and where we clearly at times will read a passage in this book and say that was a primitive time and an ancient people and it's a very difficult. You have to do some serious interpretive work to get underneath and understand what it's like. But when I read that this society was saturated by idolatry, we don't have to do much work. 
Because you and I both know what it's like to live in a culture that is crammed with idolatry. And then we may not make our idols of gold. They may come green. We may, we may not make them of precious metals. They may be made of plastic, embossed with numbers. It might be that our idols are, well, they're not made of precious materials like gold and silver, but they, at least in the fall, are made of pigskin. He said it, didn't he? The fact is, you and I, as, as sophisticated as we think we are, we are no different than the sisters and brothers in Athens in the first century because we, too, when we live an unexamined life, will lay our lives down in pursuit of something that we think will give us a soul satisfaction. And we make them of gold and silver and green and plastic and pigskin and whatever, but we will lay down our lives in pursuit of a thing that is less than the one true God. And we can spend our whole life doing the same thing. We can build our life with a saturated idolatry of ego, the idolatry of our resume, our CV, our our career, our, our sense of identity. We can idolize stuff, materialism, greed. We can idolize safety and security or control and power, and we will do the thing that it takes to be done in order to achieve this altar that will somehow allow us to feel as if all the world is right for a while, and maybe it is, until it's not. And Paul was grieved and looking around to see all of the idols in this, this idol-saturated city. But there's a phrase that's used to describe how he felt. In Greek, here's the phrase, perexuneto, which means provoked. Or you and I might say lately, he was triggered. He was triggered. And why was he triggered? Because he comes into this city and he knows that he is carrying in him a message of true liberation for humankind. It is a message that can set all of humankind free. The awareness that the God you think is far off is not far off at all, but has come near and has demonstrated God's love by taking on the sin and brokenness of the world and restored us to union with him and potential union with one another. And Yet he knows he has this message and looks to his left and sees shrines. He looks to his right and sees towers and statues and idols. And he's grieved. He's triggered. And i got to tell you, I get it. As a pastor, I, I too grieve at the fact that we have at our disposal a message that can truly set people free from their own patterns of self-destruction. And yet we watch them, we watch ourselves pursue pathways of peace that end up in great disappointment and sometimes even greater destruction. There's something of a, a grief that settles in. And, and yet Paul sees something in Athens that maybe they don't see. He notices that there is something beneath all of the facade, all of the projected hopes of their idolatry. He sees something. Let's take a look. It begins in verse number 17. So 
He argued in the synagogue with the Jews and devout persons. And also in the marketplace and every day with those who happened to be there. Also some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers debated with him. Some said, what what does this babbler want to say? I've heard that said in this room from time to time. That's not that funny. Don't laugh that hard. Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign deities. This was because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So they took him and brought him to the Areopagus and asked him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? It sounds rather strange to us, so we would like to know what it means. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners living there would spend their time in nothing but telling or hearing something new. So what's happening here, there in Athens? He stands there at the center. Now, Laura and I had the, the, the opportunity to be in Athens, Greece, a couple of years ago. And we, we could stand on the Areopagus, this big rock, a place of Mars Hill, where he gives this famous speech that we're about to read in a moment. And, and you can look in one direction and see the remains of what was at one time this glorious temple structure to Athena. And down below you could see the marketplace. And if you could imagine with your mind's eye, you can see the pens where goats and and cattle and, and sheep would be sold, where fruits and vegetables would be gathered and traded for commerce. It was a marketplace for commerce, the selling of goods. But it was also a marketplace of ideas. Because while they were doing business, they would share new ideas about the way things are in the world, new philosophies, new ways to see the world. They would share it. They were constantly, as the text says, constantly sharing and listening to new ideas. Interesting, you know, before the Internet, before libraries as we know them, we've always been made in a way that hungers for the mysteries of the world, right? Shortly after Jackson began school this past year at Belmont, he's a couple weeks in, and he says to me, Dad, man, the study's going great. I love the library. The library is the greatest place on campus. I just, I'm spending all my time in the library. I'm like, well, that sounds great, buddy. You know, tell me about it. He goes, yeah. It's like there's all this knowledge. He said, it's almost like this, like this organized Internet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. Before the organized internet, there was a marketplace of ideas, and they were constantly sharing and listening. And interestingly, on the Areopagus, there would, there would be debate between the various philosophies, but not debate the way that you and I think of debate today. Because unfortunately, one of the things I grieve is the death of intellectual dialogue, that we cannot abide with one another with differences and actually end up walking out better for it. Athens, it's as if they had this wet rag on the clay of their hearts. Don't you long for the return of intelligent dialogue with one another so that the goal of debating is not to win, not to dominate, not to put out to rest the other opinion, but to actually grow in mutual learning? In Athens, there was this hunger for something, this desire to grow, and, and Paul saw it, and he had the opportunity to share about it. Now, 
I know that some, some of you have children who you're concerned about. Maybe, I don't know, maybe they've left the teaching of their childhood. Maybe you have husbands or wives, and maybe you're here, but they're not here today, and you're concerned about a friend, a neighbor, a coworker who perhaps has walked away from what we have defined as faith, and you're worried about them, and, and you're praying about them. I just want to give you a, a different kind of perspective here for just a moment. When I read this passage about, uh, uh, about Athens, and that Paul sees in them that they were constantly making space in their lives for the discovery of mystery. Do you know what it occurs to me? This is how God has made us. God has created us with an innate kind of divine homing beacon that causes us to hunger for the things of God. Even if for a while we search and we fill that hunger with things that are not of God, the truth is, Augustine said it best. Augustine said, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. I just want you to let that hang there for just a moment. Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. You were made to long for God. And whether you long for God or not does not stop your longing. And it's possible to so fill that longing with less satisfying false gods, idols, that we are restless until then. And if you are worried about someone in your life who has walked away and is filling their life with something else that is not godly, I just want to encourage you to pray this way. First, to acknowledge the reality that God has made them with a hunger, and that's good. But secondly, to pray that God would simply make them restless until they find their rest in him. Is that not the truth for you? Are, are you not, when you are restless the most, if you step back and examine your own life, is it not possible that you recognize, maybe I've been filling my life with other things that keep me restless, and yet I will be restless until I rest in you. Paul saw in them an innate, God-given desire to make space for the mystery of God that they couldn't name, that they did not know. It's as if there was a wet rag on the clay of their hearts. So let's see what he does about it. Picking up in verse 30 or 22, Paul. Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I, I, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found, I, I found an altar with the inscription... To an unknown God. How about that? What, therefore, you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as if he needed anything since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things from one ancestor he made all the nations to inhabit the whole earth and 
He allotted the times of their existence, watch this, and the boundaries of their places where they would live. Why? So that they would search for God and perhaps grope for them and find them, even though indeed he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we too are his offspring. Yes, yes. Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is, is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art or imagination of mortals. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now that is a sermon. But notice his entree. Notice his entry point. It's groundbreaking. It's like no sermon you have ever heard before. He looks and instead of condemning the faith that they didn't have, his starting point is to affirm the faith they do have. He sees that they have created a space. They're kind of, they, they have all these idols and they, they named one the idol to the unknown God. Just in case the universe is being held together by some deity that they've never met, that they don't know, that they can't comprehend. So it's kind of a catch-all to try to cover their, 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 their bases. And so the God who is unknown Paul says, bravo, this is faith. You have created space in you for the possibility of meeting the one who you didn't know his name, but I got a name for you. See, it's groundbreaking because he, he starts by affirming the faith they have instead of condemning the faith they don't have. Do you know who else did this? Jesus. Syrophoenician woman comes up. By the way, Syrophoenician women are from another country, another culture, a different religion, a different language, and demonstrates faith by the question she asks. A, a Roman centurion who is from another culture, another language, another religion, demonstrates faith by the question that he asks. The Samaritan woman dipping her, her bucket into the well of human relationships again and again in this conversation. She's from a different faith, a different, different culture, a, a different language. And yet, to all of these and more, Jesus affirmed the faith they had as a beginning point rather than condemning all the faith that they had not yet grown into. And he would say things to them like, you are, you are closer to the kingdom than you think. Or, the kingdom is in you. Or, in all of Israel, I've never, never met anyone with as much faith as this woman. Yeah, yeah. He affirmed the faith they have, recognizing it's a gift from God to have that desire in the first place. And in that desiring, something emerges. So, what would happen if we actually treated all of our unbelieving neighbors in the same way? 
What if instead of filling us with anxiety because our nephew, our daughter, our cousin, our uncle, our, our neighbor next to us, our coworker, instead of condemning their pursuit of that God-given desire, the divine hunger that was built into them, what if we began with acknowledging the reality that that is the starting point to faith and that we have a name to put onto every pursuit that any, it really boils down to what do you believe? Do you believe that there are other gods? We talk about this group worships a different God and this group another God and we worship this God and we have different gods. How many gods are there? I mean, no, no, really. I mean, so one way to answer it is, well, there are countless gods, like, you know, the God of football, the God of TV, the God of your computer screen, the God, the God of money and materialism. That's one way to answer it. Another way is there is no God but God. And if that's true, don't you feel a little bit more relaxed at this moment to say, if that's the case, then now the gospel message of Jesus is we get to proclaim to the universe that the thing that they've been seeking is Christ. It has been Christ the whole time. It was Christ before they had a name for it. It'll be Christ after their knees bend and their tongues confess it. It is always Christ. This is a new evangelism, really. An awareness that we too, just like the original church, have the freedom to see in other human beings the starting point of faith and say, yeah, yeah, well done. Now, let me give you a name. This is why in Romans we read it this way. In Romans we read, ever since the creation of the world, his eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things he has made. That's why in Colossians we read it this way. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's why in Ephesians we read it this way. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. Beloved, it is Christ who from the dawn of time has been pursuing us even when we did not know the name to pursue ourselves. And if we lived in such a way that that was actually true, all the churches in all the world could not contain those who are racing to be called by the name of Jesus. This is what it means that he sees the, the shrine to the unknown God and he fills that holy space in their lives with a name. But do you know it's equally possible today that you and I as followers of Jesus could still worship an unknown God? You can answer all the questions the right way. You can check all the boxes, use all the right words. You could say to yourself, I am a Christian. I was baptized. And I came up, I ate the salt, carried the light. I am a Christian and still not know him. Do you know him? Do you? Uh, there's a difference between knowing about God, having all the answers of stories that have been handed to you. There's a difference between knowing about God and knowing him and the freedom that comes from confessing your humility before him. Saying, I've blown it again. Or waking up at the midnight hour and recognizing I have no way to rescue myself from the mess that I have made. Do you know him? And, and maybe... 
If you're confused as to who I'm talking about, maybe we need to borrow the words of a description from the great S.M. Lockridge to give you just a little suggestion as to who I'm talking about when I ask you, do you know this king whose resurrection has made his domain all the universe? Let me see if I can describe him to you. See, the Bible says he is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. Somewhere along the way, whenever you want to jump on board this train, just join me in affirmation that he is the king of all these things. See, he's the king of glory. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. I wonder, do you know him? See, no means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. See, that's my king. Do you know him? He's God's son. He's the sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He's supreme. He's preeminent. I'm just trying to describe him for you here for just a moment. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He is the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine in true theology. See, that's, that's my king. Do you know him? He's the only one able to supply all of our needs according to his riches and glory and all simultaneously. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He guards and he guides. He heals and he, he heals the sick. He cleansed the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young and he serves the unfortunate. He regards the aged. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. That's my king. Do you know him? See, my king is the key of knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway to deliverance. He's a pathway the pathway to peace. He is the roadway of righteousness. He is the highway to holiness. He is the gateway of all glory. That's my king. Do you know him? See, his office is manifold. His promise is sure. His life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy. And his burden is light. That's my king. See, I wonder if you know him. I wish I could describe him to you. <laughs> He's indescribable. He's indestructible. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. You can't get him out of your mind. And you can't get him off your hand. You can't outlive him and you can't live without him. The Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault with him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. And the grave could not hold him. 
That's my king. Do you know him? Yes. Yes. There is no amount of words that could describe the indescribable king, the Christ who wants to be made known to you and who already knows you.